If you would, take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 21. We continue our journey through the book of Acts. And so you kind of grab a picture maybe of what, what all is going to be happening. We're next week, um, we having uh, Josh Kane will be bringing the word uh, next week in the next text. And then we're going to have an ordination service because you guys affirmed the setting apart of two new pastors, Corey and Adam, were both approved. And so we're going to do that on the 23rd. And then we'll be back in Acts until the end of June. And we're going to finish this great book in the last week of June, Lord willing. And then in July, there's some special sermons that we're going to do, kind of um, standalone. Uh, well, they're, they're a series, but the four of them will kind of stand alone. Um, and then in August, we're going to launch back out into a new book, a new study. And that book is Ecclesiastes. You know, our, our pattern here is to go New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, declaring the whole counsel of God. And so it'll be Ecclesiastes. And somebody's already asked me about the next book, which is way out there. You know, the Lord may return, and that'll be good. That'll be good. That'll be good. Uh, but if the Lord tarries and we uh, uh, make it through the fall, probably after our standalone January sermons, which we have every year, probably in February, We'll kick off a study of the book of Romans. Uh, so I'm excited about that. So that's kind of a future look at what we're doing here at Grace Fellowship. Thank you for being with us. Acts chapter 21, verse 37 says, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian? Then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when, and the, and when there was a great hush... He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when the crowd heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drawing near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw that the light 
but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And he said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait, rise, and be baptized, and washed away your sins, calling on his name? When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their clothes and and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Over the past couple of weeks... We have seen Paul intentionally journeying to Jerusalem under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because he wanted to deliver the gospel in that place to his countrymen. The reason he wanted to do that is because he loved the Jewish people. Listen to Paul giving a testimony of his love for the Jews in Romans 9 verses 1 through 3. He says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And we see it again in the next chapter, in chapter 10, verse 1, when he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
Paul had a deep and abiding love for his fellow Jews. And his love that he had for them shapes the entire text we've just read. Paul's been arrested by the Roman tribune, Lysias, because the people at the temple were about to kill him because they believed that he had defiled the temple by bringing the Ephesian Gentile into the inner court. But Paul is headed up the stairs of the barracks. We see in these first verses in verse 21. He's headed up the stairs and to the uh, crowd, or to the tribune, he asks for permission to speak to the crowd, the Jews that are gathered. Now remember, these Jews have just barred him from the temple. They've dragged him out. They've thrown him out, slammed the gate. They're screaming, away with him, away with him. The same chant, by the way, that, the same, that a crowd just like this 27 years earlier chanted about Christ himself. Away with him, away with him, right? Same thing's happening again. But he asked for an opportunity to speak to his fellow countrymen. The Roman official is shocked at this question. Not because he wants to speak, but because he speaks in Greek. That's what the question is there in your text, right? You know how to speak in Greek? I mean, he's made an assumption about this man, Paul. And the assumption is that Paul is an Egyptian assassin who's come to stir up the assassin party within Israel, in Jerusalem. This had just happened previously. We read in verse 38 that he says to Paul, Are you not the Egyptian who, then who stirred up the revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassin out in the wilderness? He's made an assumption about Paul based on probably a shaved head and his dark skin that Paul is an Egyptian. Paul says, uh, No. <laughs> I'm Jewish. <laughs> From Tarsus of Cilicia, no small city. According to Josephus, this is why the ruler might be doing this. Because there was an Egyptian who came into Jerusalem claiming to be the new Moses. Up out of Egypt to deliver the people of God from their oppressors. And he preached good sermons. And he stirred up the crowd. And he took 4,000 men out into the wilderness. And up on the Mount of Olives, he promised them that they would see the walls of the city fall. And they would storm that city like the people of Israel had done at Jericho. And they would kill all the Roman soldiers and set the people free. He, pre he preached a message of hope and change. He was a progressive in his day. <laughs> Romans didn't appreciate progressives all that much. So they sent the whole army out into the Mount of Olives and they slaughtered 400 men. They took 200 captive, and this slimy Egyptian assassin slunk away like most rebel leaders do. He hid out. They never found him. And so he assumes when he sees the crowd fomenting in the temple court, the Egyptian's back. Yeah, we're going to get our man. But Lysias, the tribune, believes that Paul must have been this same guy because the crowd is so angry. But Paul identifies himself not as an Egyptian, but as a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. And it's at this point that we see Paul's love for the Jews put on display. Instead of being taken to the safety of the Roman barracks, where he could privately be questioned, he asked permission to speak to the crowd. Paul begs, the text says. You see that word? Begs. <laughs> Pleads for an opportunity. 
he wants to speak to these people that he loves so much and who utterly hate him. He begs Lysias and he gains permission. So, notice that he, after getting the quiet of the crowd through the traditional waving of the hands, any rhetorician in the old days waved his hands to get their attention, Paul begins to speak to them in Hebrew. This is significant because the apostle is doing something intentionally here. I want you to catch this. He's gaining the trust of the people. He's speaking not to their minds, which is what the Greek language is all about. It's the trade language. All the people spoke this language. He speaks to the, to the language of their heart. The Romans standing by probably could not understand what he was saying. Maybe brokenly they understood it. But the people in the crowd recognized this identifier as this guy is a Jew. Only Jews spoke Hebrew in this day or Aramaic, a dialect of the Hebrew people. Paul absolutely loves the Jewish people and he's becoming a Jew that he might win some of the Jews in Jerusalem, even as they hate him. First thing he does is he points to a powerful testimony of the gospel. A powerful testimony of the gospel. Paul identifies with these Jews, as I've already said, in verses 1 through 5, it continues to point us to this. At the beginning of Paul's address to the people, he works hard to identify with them. It's important to remind, to be, to, uh, an important reminder to us that a witness of Christ must first gain the hearing of the people. Paul understood this. What good is it to call yourself a witness if nobody listens? So what does he do? He goes to them and he makes himself like them. He builds a bridge of common bond. He speaks to them in their heart language. Paul does this first in verses 21 through 40 when he speaks to them in their heart language. Hebrew, maybe Aramaic, which is the popular language of the day among the Jews, was not spoken by most of the people in the ancient world. Greek was the trade language. He wants these people to know that he's not an outsider. He is an insider. He is a Hebrew. Notice that Luke records the effect it has in verses 22, verse 2. Look at that. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. People respond when you intentionally build a bridge so that you can connect with their life. They respond. It's also important to take note of the introduction to his address. Paul begins by saying there in verse 3, or excuse me, earlier in verse 1, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. This is a Hebrew introduction. Brothers and fathers. This is the same introduction that Stephen gives in Acts chapter 7. Whenever he's giving his defense and his witness in front of a similar crowd. In Jerusalem, and a young Saul is standing there with the cloaks of the killers at his feet. Brothers and fathers is a term of respect. He's, he's showing the older men reverence, and he's showing the brothers that he's one of them. He's joining them with this phrase. He's saying, I am a Jew. You are my brothers. You are my fathers. Notice that he not only identifies with the crowd, but also lets them know that he has achieved the highest standing that any Jew can achieve. Look at the verse in verse 3. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, 
but brought up in what? This city. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law that of, of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Not only is he a Hebrew by using their language, but he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul wants them to know that he didn't learn the Jewish custom and the Jewish law in some provincial far out there county, out in the country. He learned it in Jerusalem. He not only learned about this uh, faith of the Jews in Jerusalem, but he learned it from the leading teacher of the first century among the Jews, Gamaliel. There were three great teachers, Gamaliel being the greatest. And Paul says, I sat at his feet. I was right next to him. And he trained me. And he taught me. You cannot get more inside than being at the feet of the greatest teacher of the Jews. So looking at these Jews, what is he doing? He says, I'm like you. I speak your language. I know your law and your customs. Oh, no, hold on. Before you pass judgment, Jews, I didn't learn it from some far out there place in Syria, some little country town, not even in a great city like Tarsus. No, my father sent me to Jerusalem. I learned our faith right here in the, in the center of the Jewish world. And not only that, I learned it from the greatest teacher among our people. Gamaliel was known as a man of great love and great compassion. It set him apart from everyone. He continues to identify himself here as like them by stating that he had great zeal. He had great zeal for God and for God's law. He says, I had the same zeal that you have. I had a great zeal. This zeal drove Paul to persecute the church, then known as the way, because it was considered a part of Judaism, but a schism, a division among the Jews. So it was called the way. Paul says in our text that he was driven by his zeal to persecute the way, to put people in chains, to bind women and men, and to put them in prison, and even to persecute them unto death. And he says, listen, the Sanhedrin and the elders right here can attest to you that I did this. They gave me authority to do it. They didn't just give me authority in Jerusalem, but they gave me authority to go to Damascus and to round up the Jews in Damascus. I mean, the, the way in Damascus. Paul was willing to give his life. Listen, Paul, before Christ, was willing to give his life for the Jewish faith. When he got saved, that part of him did not change in the sense that he was willing to die for what he believed in. Part of the problem that some of us have is we're not willing to die for what we say we believe in. We're believers. We have the Holy Spirit in us, and we're not as zealous as the Apostle Paul was as a lost man. He was willing to die for his faith. Paul was... On this journey to Damascus, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. What? Blameless. Blameless. It's at that point, right here in the text, that Paul shows why he is now opposed by these zealous Jews. 
because in verse 6, he begins to tell them, not just that I identify with you, but my identity is now in Christ. He won them a hearing. Hebrew language, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I know your law. I was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. I'm no outsider, I'm an insider. And in verse 6, he flips the script. He says, this is the summation. My identity is not in those things. My identity is in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Look what the text says. It's the second time in the book of Acts that we're going to see the story of Paul's conversion. The first time it's written in the third person in Luke's own hand in Acts 9. He tells it from his perspective. In this text, it's in first person because Paul is witnessing to the, the people. And in chapter 26, he's going to tell it one more time. Now, I think we should take note of something. When God says something one time, it's enough. When God records it in his word one time, it's a finished deal, right? If he records it three times in one small little book, I think it's important for us to understand. He's making a point. And you know what? This isn't the only time Paul's testimony is recorded. He records his testimony for us a fourth time in Galatians chapter 2. Paul's conversion and his testimony are significant to the work of the New Testament. And so we need to pay attention to this. I want us to dig in here for a moment. Paul emphasizes the greatness of the light which he saw. He says that as he was coming near to Damascus in verse 6, at noon, about noon, a great light shone from heaven. This emphasis is there in Paul's speech on purpose because he wants them to see. The light that I saw coming from heaven was brighter than the sun at full strength at noon. How great is the holiness of our God? His Shekinah glory outshines the sun. Jesus appeared in the heavens to Paul and darkened the sun. All he could see was the light of Jesus Christ around him. It's brighter than the full strength of the sun. The call came to him from a voice in the light, and that call was clear. Jesus of Nazareth was calling Paul to himself. When he saw the light, he fell to the ground, and he heard the sound of a voice in verse 7. And what does it say? What, what does he say? What does it say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, the Bible tells us that his traveling companions, they don't understand what's being said. Only Paul understands it. This is a very specific call. This is not the general call of the preaching of the gospel. This is the specific call of the Spirit of God through Christ on the heart of the Apostle Paul. This is an irresistible call. We don't see anything in this text. Do you see anything in this text about Paul trying to make up his mind about what he will do? Do you see anything in this text that says, well... Jesus made an offer to Paul, and then it was up to Paul in his own strength and his own faith to figure out whether he believed it or not. No. So unless God saves some people differently than he saves other people, 
then we're left with nothing to believe except that God sovereignly calls his people through irresistible calling, through the spirit and life of Jesus Christ, church. What secures you in your moments of doubt? That you didn't hear some general call from some talented preacher that called you and convinced you and manipulated you to pray some prayer, but rather that the Spirit of God touched your heart and said, come to me and I will save you. Paul heard that call in his heart and he heard it in his ears. Nobody else with him heard it. Acts 9 says they thought it was thunder. That's typical of God's voice. Thunder. But Paul heard the exact call. Why are you persecuting me? The connection between Christ and his church is also seen in this text. You think you're alone in this world? Do you think you face your trials and tribulations alone? Look what Jesus said to Paul. Why are you persecuting the church? The way? The people in Jerusalem? No. What does he say? Why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't persecuting people. He was persecuting God the Son. The connection between Jesus Christ and his church is so intimate that to do something against one is to do it against the other. Just as much as if you offend my wife, you offend me. That's how he loves us, church. Paul makes sure that the crowd gathered here understands that Jesus of Nazareth is who he's speaking of. Not some general call of God, specifically Jesus the Nazarene. (laughs) This detail is given to us in verse 8, and it's important because it shows Paul making sure they understand that he's not making a witness about generally God, but Jesus Christ specifically. The one who had been rejected by a crowd just like this 27 years earlier to this event in this same city. He's connecting himself intimately to Jesus. My identity was in the law. My identity was in being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, raised up in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. I was persecuting the church because of my great zeal for God. But now my identity is Jesus Christ. If your testimony is not that clear, something's wrong. Something's wrong. You were not born a Christian. You were born a rebel against God in his ways. And at some moment, God said, enough with that. You're mine. Come here. And your soul leapt out of the darkness and the chains were gone. And you said, I will follow wherever you go. That's the call of salvation. This section also ties his testimony to the events in the Old Testament. First of all, notice what he does when he hears the voice of Jesus. He calls out and says, who are you, Lord? Not unlike Moses at the burning bush who said, who shall I say sent me? He wants to know who this is that he's talking to. Paul is identifying himself here like an Old Testament prophet being called unexpectedly, miraculously, magnificently. He's seeing the light and he says, who are you? I want to know you. It's important for us, Grace Fellowship, to see this. We are saved by grace, miraculously, just like the Apostle Paul was saved by miraculous grace. We're just like him in our rejection of God. And he is rich in mercy with the great love with which he loves us. He makes us alive in Christ Jesus. We are saved by Christ alone. 
for the glory of God alone. That's what happens to Paul. This is his testimony. So this powerful Pharisee persecutor of the church is led like a little child into Damascus. Notice that. The humility. He says, rise, go into Damascus. And Paul can't even get there by himself. One of the most powerful men of his day is being led like a child across the street. He has no self-ability. He can't even get himself into Damascus. <laughs> He's powerless. Paul then gives us and gives the people a testimony of his call in the ministry. Verses 12 through 16. Notice it. it's at this point that he turns to the call that he's given to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 12 that Ananias was a devout Jew according to the law, and he was one that was respected by all the Jews in the city. Ananias came to him, and by commanding him to regain his sight, he healed Paul of his blindness on the spot that very hour. And Paul immediately then is told about his ministry. Verse 14 says that Ananias gave him this word from the Lord, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from my, my, his mouth, for you will be a witness to him of what you have seen and heard. The God of our fathers, again, a tie of the Old Testament, like Exodus 3, 15 through 16, and Moses hearing from the burning bush, the God of our fathers is sending you, Paul. And not only that tie of the Old Testament prophets, but Isaiah's tie, righteous one. Isaiah's the one who uses that phrase, righteous one, in the Old Testament. Paul is being painstaking in saying, I'm not inventing a new religion. I'm not making up another religion. I'm proclaiming you the end of your, your religion. The end of your religion is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Like Corey said, the law was given as a tutor. The time of the old covenant was special because it was given as a tutor to hold them until the coming of Christ. But then Christ came. And now Paul is saying, I'm not out here pointing over there at the Jews saying, oh, y'all got it all wrong. Let me tell y'all. He's saying, no, I'm standing here with Moses and Isaiah. That's who I'm standing with. Who are you standing with? See, he didn't say that, but that's what's implicit. They heard it. I, I'm with the fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs, Moses himself, David, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, who are you with? He's tied himself directly to the flow of redemptive history all through the ages. Paul's giving testimony of the greatness of God here. Paul is saying the righteous one of Israel by grace alone has saved me. And now he's calling me to preach the gospel. Paul's identified with the people as much as he can. And now he's saying, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is testifying to the greatness of the Jesus that set him free from the zealous Hebrew Pharisee of hopeless religion into the zealous man for the righteous one, Jesus Christ, whose hope is eternal. 
He's bearing witness. And at this point in verse 16, Ananias told him something. And I'll just make a note of this. I know it's 1125. I got you. This is the bulk of the sermon. Because too often we're rushing, 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 rushing to get to a point. The point won't make any sense unless you get this. But I got to say one thing about verse 16. Notice that Ananias tells this Jew of the Jews who was circumcised on the eighth day to be baptized so that he might identify with Jesus Christ. It's just a side note. It's not the main point of this passage. But I think it would be necessary for us to say this. In the New Testament, baptism is rightly applied to believers. And it's applied through immersion. The word baptism, don't ever let anybody change this about you. Baptism is a transliteration. There is no Greek word, uh, no, no English word exactly there. Baptizo is a transliteration. It means immerse. It is only used in ancient literature to talk about taking a cucumber and putting it in the spices, where you immerse it until the top pops off, and you can then take that cucumber, which has now become a pickle, out. Baptism is you going under and coming up. I know there are those who are not baptized that way with us today, and I love you. And this is a secondary issue, which does not mean you are not a Christian. As a matter of fact, we're allowing you to be a member of this church. Because we're not trying to unnecessarily divide, but we also aren't passing over what the text itself says. This Jew of the Jews who was circumcised rightly by his parents to make him a part of the covenant community of faith, was then told, you must be baptized. To outwardly identify with the new covenant in the New Testament. New Testament mark of being in the spiritual people of God is applied to believers only after conversion. That's it. Paul had been faithfully circumcised by his parents, so that he was a part of the people of God. But when he got saved by Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was baptized as a sign of calling on the name of Jesus for salvation. And I, I don't want to go too much further down this trail, but I do want you to know that it is here in the text. We're not making it up. This is not a sermon on baptism. We probably need one of those. You'll get it later in the year. But this is a sermon not on baptism, but it's important to understand that baptism by immersion after conversion is exactly what the first church did. It's what Ananias told Paul to do. So Paul was saved, and it was demonstrated by creedal baptism, and he was called to ministry. But then his call becomes very specific. In verse 17, he gives the details that he returned to Jerusalem, and he was praying in the temple. And this is more detail than what we get in Acts 9. Paul says that he was in a trance. He was in a stupor, a mental stupor, like Peter, like John, like many of the Old Testament prophets. God is giving him direct revelation, and his mind and heart are consumed with what he hears Jesus saying. There's an obvious connection in this paragraph to Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up on the throne with the train of his glory filling the earth. That's what Paul sees. He sees Jesus before him. And 
The difference is that Isaiah was called to go to the Israel, to the people of Israel. Paul was called to go to the Gentiles. Same calling, same kind of trance happens, different group of people. Paul then wants, I mean, he pleads with Jesus. He pleads with him, please let me speak to them. They know who I am. They know that I'm the, the Jew of the Jews. And yet Jesus says, no, go far away. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So he gets a specific call in 17 through 21. Now in verse 22, our text takes a miraculous turn. The gospel divides. You can build bridges, and you should. You can get commonality. You can seek common ground. You can preach a message that they can understand, and that the moment you preach the true gospel, it will divide you from some. It's unavoidable. Look what it says. Look what it says in verse, uh, when they heard this. What did they say in verse 22? Away with this man from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This is exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It divides believers from everyone else. And Jesus promised this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. When he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is exactly what's happening to Paul in front of this crowd of people. The people of Jerusalem are rejecting Paul because he is identifying not with them any longer but with Christ. They hate Paul because he finds his life in Christ alone. They hate him. So Paul went from being a favorite student of the greatest teacher among the Jews to being worthy of death in their eyes because he was the student and disciple of the greatest man to ever live, the God-man, Jesus Christ. We need to learn this lesson, folks. You can expect that you will be rejected because of your love for our Lord. So many people in our day are trying to make peace with the world. But Jesus says he did not come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword to divide believers from unbelievers. He came to bring the sword of the gospel which divides everyone who believes in him from everyone who rejects him. And Paul knew this. Compromise will not work because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus Christ and God his Father. So compromise all you want. Many have tried. The mainline denominations of our land are basically non-existent now. Why? Because they thought they could compromise. Well, you know, the Bible is a good book. It's true. It contains truth. It's not inerrant. You know, I know the Bible says that men are to be the elders and pastors of the church, but women are so talented. And now, and I'm not going to name the denomination because I'm not a part of it, but now one of the most conservative denominations in our land that already split from the main line is going to probably split again in our day. Why? Why? Because now those same people have crept in and they're saying, 
I mean, is it really wrong for homosexuals to be ordained? They can claim to be homosexual and just not be married to a man or married to a woman. This is not a liberal denomination. There's plenty of that. This would be considered a conservative denomination. Why? Because when you compromise with this world, you leave Jesus. You can be winsome and you should be. You can build bridges of relationship and you should. You should say, look, I was all that you are. But, and when you say but and you insert that Jesus Christ saved you from that former life, they hate Jesus so they will hate you. It's, it's just part of it. And Paul knew this. So how does Paul respond once the people have rejected him? He dusts off his feet. That's what this last paragraph is in verses 25 through 29. The Apostle Paul dusts off his feet. The Roman Tribune pulls him into the barracks to save him from himself because the people are up in arms again. And verse 25 says that when they stretched him out for the whip, see, they couldn't fully understand what he was saying to the people. I mean, he's speaking again in a language they don't commonly know. So I believe the Tribune is saying, look, I can't get to the bottom of this. Stop him from talking before all these people kill this fool out here on the steps. Take him in the barracks, shut the door, stretch him out, and I'll flog him until he tells me what exactly he's doing and why they're so upset. So he pulls him out, stretches him, and then what does Paul say? Is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen before he's condemned? The centurion, the text doesn't say this, but this is what happened to him. He turned white as a ghost. He lost control of himself. And he went to the tribune and said, what in the world are you doing? This man is a Roman. Now, to you, that doesn't mean anything. But listen to this. A Roman citizen originally was one born in the city of Rome. Those were the only Roman citizens. Everybody else was a conquered people and had less rights. The Romans had all the rights. Later, because they all run out, empires all run out of money. Ours is too. Runs out of money. And then you got to raise funds. So how you do it? You say, well, we'll sell you citizenships. So people started, the emperor started selling citizenships to wealthy people in the outlying provinces and conquered people. The tribune says in our text, doesn't he, I bought my citizenship with a large sum of money. Paul says, I didn't buy mine. I was born a Roman citizen. What he's saying is my grandfather or my father are very powerful people with a lot of money and influence. And years ago, they bought our family into the Roman citizenship. I just want to know, do you want to be charged for beating a Roman? The penalty for beating a Roman most commentators believe the penalty for strapping a Roman with a strap before he's, like tying him up before he's convicted, you know what the penalty is? Death. Why did the centurion panic and go to the tribune and say, Lysias, have you lost your ever-living mind? This guy's a Roman. It was because he thought, they're going to kill me and they're going to kill you. And when they come for me, I'm telling them it was you. You didn't tell me this guy was Roman. What are you doing? But listen, he's claiming this Roman citizenship. They come to him and say, are you a Roman? He says, yeah. 
Now, in their mind, they're thinking, you just said you were a Jew, right? Now he's saying, I'm a Roman. It's important. Listen, first, he identified with them as long as he had a hearing with them. But when they rejected Jesus Christ, he rejected them. Paul was willing to be identified as the Jew of the Jews. And when this crowd said, away with him from the earth, kill him, he is a Gentile-loving Jesus lover, Paul said, I'm a Roman. Why this shift? I thought a lot about it this week, and I really do believe this is the shift that's necessary because he realizes that as Jesus had promised they would not listen to him, they will not listen to him. And his calling was not to them but to the Gentiles. And they have rejected Jesus, Stephen, and his witness. And so he shakes the dust off. In Matthew 10, verse 14, it says, that if any, Jesus says this, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for these. Truly, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Jerusalem. God already poured his anger out on Jerusalem in 70 AD. He destroyed the entire city. 100,000 people died at least. They were eating their children because they were being starved to death. And the temple was left not one stone on another. Why? Because they rejected their Messiah. And they didn't just reject him. They rejected everyone he sent to them. And they rejected Stephen. And they rejected Paul. And they rejected the church. And so they are rejected. Paul is pronouncing judgment on these people, I believe. And he skillfully gains the right to go to Rome and preach the gospel, which he's wanted to do from the very beginning. He's going to get his chance to go to the big show in their day. But there's sadness in his heart. Has to be sadness in his heart. Why? Because he loved these people. He loved these people. He was willing to go to hell for these people to be saved. That's what Romans 9 says. I would be accursed and cut off from Christ if they would be saved. That's how much he loved them. And I, I just want you to know, just like him, you will face rejection. If you stand with Christ, no matter how winsome you are, at the end, if they reject Christ, they will reject you. And at the point that they have rejected the witness of Christ and the witness of the gospel, your, their blood is not on your hands. And you move along. You don't become a Christian nag and manipulator. You move along. And you trust that God will do what God's going to do. You move on. <laughs> we have a great unreached people in this world. One of the reasons I think they're not reached, 3.2 billion of them, 7,000 tribes of people. And one of the reasons they have no witness to the gospel is because we've spent far too long holding the hand of a bunch of people who will never receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're happy and satisfied to preach the gospel 
in reached lands only. Because we're doing something. We're making disciples. We're doing a good thing. But we're not focused on reaching those who have never heard. Paul said, I don't want to preach the gospel where it's already been preached. I desire to preach it among the people who've never heard the gospel. Why? Because his goal was to fulfill the Great Commission, which says, go to every tribe and tongue and people and make disciples of them. Not just go make disciples of every tribe and people group. So the last thing I will say to you today is, why are we not consumed with Paul's consumption, his mission? Jesus Christ proclaimed among the people. We should be consumed the same way, church. We should be seeking to preach the gospel among those who have never heard the truth. Let's pray. Father, as we close and we prepare to leave, there's been this text is convicting because in this text we see so much of ourselves. We see ourselves in, sadly, our former selves, if we're believers, in those who reject. But you had great mercy on us, great love. We see ourselves, Father, in Paul's position, but not with his courage. We often compromise. Help us. And we see ourselves at Paul's place, having preached the gospel clearly, unashamedly, and been rejected, and yet we continue to go to the same places with the same truth, neglecting those who have never heard. God, have mercy on us and give us your heart for the people. It's in your name we pray. Amen.